This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I'm going to have a chat with Nell Pierce. Away you go. When did you feel like an adult? When you were 18 and had your first legal drink? Or when you got your licence? Or when you left home? This is one of the themes going through A Place Near Eden, Nell Pierce's debut novel. Welcome, Nell. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Your story is about Matilda Holman, or Tilly. Her first home is with her family in Canberra. So who is her family? Yeah, that's kind of one of the questions that I'm exploring in the novel. You know, Tilly has a biological mother and father who um, separate uh, during the novel, or at least during the kind of flashback part of the novel. But her parents, predominantly her mum, drive the um, fostering of a brother, Sam, for her, who then leaves their family under difficult circumstances. And so a lot of the novel is also about Tilly's relationship with Sam, both when she Mm. was an adolescent and also when she's a bit older and they reconnect. Well, we often hear about parents who stay together for the sake of the children, but it was Sam who actually causes one of the reasons for the separation. One of the reasons, yes. (laughs) Sam lived with them for two years but kept running away from his home. Then he was removed and fostered by another family. It may have been Tilly's father's disapproval or the weight of Tilly's mother's love for him, but Tilly blames herself We see Tilly's inability to ask about why he left. So is this Tilly's immaturity or just her nature? Probably a bit of both, I think. I mean, you know, and it's probably a question that applies to to all of us and some of our worst qualities. I think Tilly is a person who is more passive and certainly feels some of the awkwardness of being young very strongly. But I definitely think there's also an element of immaturity too. And I Mm. hope that over the course of the novel, part of the the story is that she matures just a little bit. Yeah. The book is Tilly's storytelling of events that happened up to when she was 20 years old. Who is she telling the story for? So that's something that kind of becomes revealed um, Mm. throughout the narrative. But I don't think it's giving too much away to say that she... She's telling the story to Sam's future child and I think mm. that's because she feels responsibility for some of the things that have happened to Sam and in a way the living person who she's heard as a result is, is his child and so it's addressed to the child as I'm not sure if it's a sort of confession or asking for, for forgiveness mm. or I think it's complicated. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, There's another young girl, Celeste and her mother, Christina. They share a house in Carlisle Road with Tilly and Tilly's mum. Now, this is Tilly. She's only 12. And Celeste and Sam are grown-up 14-year-olds together. Could she verbalise how she felt about them? Yeah, I mean, I think she... I think she tries, but yeah, maybe one of the things that I was exploring in the novel is, yeah, that there are a lot of things, and she's the narrator, but there are a lot of things that she's not really able mm. to um, to express. Uh, she's kind of an unreliable narrator, but maybe one of the funny things about her is that she's an unreliable narrator who's always reminding everyone how unreliable she is, and how can you trust an unreliable narrator who tells you that they're unreliable? So yeah, there's something funny there. Well, let's get a sense of Tilly. When Tilly and her mum moved to Melbourne, Tilly's doing year 12 and her mum is now with Liam. So let's get a little bit from page 36. Yeah, this is from the book. 
I was about to finish school without a single romantic encounter. I was very sensitive about seeming naive. If someone mentioned something from the adult world that I didn't know much about, especially anything to do with sex, I would pretend that I already knew all about it, even if I didn't. And I was nervous of showing I was interested in someone in case they weren't interested in me, and then I would look stupid, forever thinking they could be attracted to me. Maybe it had something to do with Mum and Liam, who were forever kissing, holding hands, disappearing into the bedroom in the middle of the day. I felt like they were showing me how much I didn't understand. Mm. Well, Liam's got a younger brother and he's having a party. Tilly goes along and who does she meet there? Yeah, she bumps into Celeste, uh, who had been living with her when they were kids, and through Celeste reconnects with uh, Sam again. Yeah. Well, Tilly finds out that Celeste isn't the only one who's been in contact with Sam over this time. Her mother has too. So why hadn't Tilly tried to contact him? Yeah, I think that that's something that Tilly kind of grapples with a bit in the novel. And I think maybe part of it is kind of the, you know, the inertia of just kind of going with the flow of, you know, letting life take her um, and perhaps being passive in that way. But I think she also comes to feel kind of guilty or question herself Mm. why, how she could let someone go who she had thought was so important to her. And I think that that's something that I'm looking at in the novel is that Tilly feels like Sam is someone who's very important to her and who she cares for a lot. But when she looks at her actions or when we look at her actions, actually often there isn't that much evidence of care there or maybe it's something that's more inside her mind but less in her in her actions. I think I'm, I, yeah, I'm interested in, with all of us, I guess, the ways that we're responsible for the people that we love and that that's kind of an active responsibility. And sometimes it can be easy to look at yourself and your relationship with other people and say, oh, well, I haven't done anything explicitly to hurt them, although Tilly actually sometimes does do things mm. that hurt other people. But, yeah, actually, n- you know, not explicitly hurting someone even isn't really enough. It's about doing those positive actions to, to care for them. Positive actions. Now, that usually happens in a friendship. Sam comes and goes. So it's Celeste and Tilly. Do they have a friendship? Yeah, I mean, I think they do have a friendship, but it's a pretty complex friendship. I think with all my characters, I hope I'm interested in showing, you know, none of them are particularly likeable, I don't think. But they're not all wholly bad. I think they have good and bad elements. And so, you know, Celeste in her relationship with Tilly, there's certainly a strong manipulative element Mm. there. But she can also be fun and magnetic and warm and loving sometimes too and so that kind of complicates things and it's hard to hard to kind of characterize their relationship so simply well this is a quote from Nell Pierce's book Celeste always marrying a compliment with something undermining so that I would feel grateful for her friendship and keep on needing her so sometimes if Tilly even felt that she was a witness or the audience for Celeste's actions. So was Celeste controlling Tilly? Well, that's one of the questions that I'm interested in exploring and that I don't think I really answer or intend to answer in the book. I mean, I think that Tilly sometimes presents Celeste as someone who is manipulating her or someone that she's just observing in their actions. But then I think another reading of the story is that actually Tilly does do a lot of things of her own back even if you know she feels like Celeste is manipulating her I don't know I think one of the funny things you know with novels is sometimes particularly if you read a novel that has a 
ostensibly reliable narrator you read the book and then it's like oh well that's the story and that's what happened and this person did this and this person did that but in real life if someone tells you a story and they say you know this person did x y and z to me often you'll think oh well you know that's your version of events but I'd like to talk to the other person or you know it's more uh, questionable and so in this novel as well yeah you know Tilly presents a certain and she's a narrator so she has a lot of control of what she's presenting but you know what is the truth um it's not so not so easy to to see another quote Celeste could twist my arm in that clever almost loving way she had ah and it's Celeste who tells Tilly to give up her job give up her boyfriend Peter and go where yeah, I think that, you know, they just go to the beach together. They go to to the coast near Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, which is an area that I love. And it's also the title of the book. Yes, it is the title of the book. Yeah, because it's really important to me. It's the first thing I started with when I was writing the book. I was living in New York and I was really missing Australia and the Australian landscape. And I'd spent a lot of time around Eden and around Tarthra um, when I was growing up. Um, and I think it's so beautiful and rugged around there. And so that's what I started writing. And then kind of the book, the book went from there. Another quote. The city was far away now. It seemed as if I might have escaped. I felt like I had come to the edge of my old life and was looking ahead into something bright and new. Now, there's one thing that Tilly disagreed with but never voiced. It was Celeste's interest in in conspiracy theories. <laughs> Who got Celeste interested in these? Yeah, um, I think that she became interested in the theories, well, certainly according to Tilly in the book, and in this case I agree with Tilly, because of Sam. And I think that for Celeste, sharing that interest with Sam was a way of kind of demonstrating their bond and a feeling closer to him. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting the kind of conspiracy theory element of the book. It's something that sort of gradually came out as I as I was writing. And as I mentioned, a lot of them a lot of the novel I was writing when I was living in America and maybe also mm. conspiracy <laughs> theories play um, you know, a, a role there as well. So yeah, I was thinking about that. Well Sam returns for Celeste's twenty first birthday and the consequences lead to a very different celebration and a document being made made by her old friend Peter. So the, docu- the documentary comes out and it's then we learn that Tilly is to stand trial. We're going to finish this with... Absolutely. So this is from page 279. Maybe that's what I've been doing for you all along, telling you this story so that in the end you will look at me with your innocent baby eyes and give me your verdict, innocent or guilty, right or wrong, forgiven or condemned. <gasps> Yes, so got to read the book to find out why she's on trial, whatever. Now, you won the Australian Vogels Literary Award 2022 for this book. Yes, I did. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really exciting. And you started writing in New York and uh, and finished it here in Melbourne. That's right. Yeah, I wrote on for ages, uh, just before work every morning. <laughs> so how well can we remember events and things from our past? Matilda agonises over things said and unsaid, looking for the truth in a place near Eden. This is the Australian Vogel Literary Award winner, 2022, Nell Pierce. Thank you very much, Nell. Thank you. And thank you, Jan. Well, let's get to my author. 
the almost elemental existence of unions comes to life in Sam Wallman's graphic novel, Our Members Be Unlimited. So, Sam, welcome to 3CR. <laughs> Thank you. Very cinematic entrance. I like that. <laughs> well, talking of cinema, we've got to actually read this novel in a new way, or almost new for me because I'm used to words, but you've got graphics. And what captured my attention initially was you start with the cosmos. You start with the galaxy and this forms into clouds, which forms into people. And it would seem to me as if you're almost suggesting there's a natural evolution to unions and unionism. Yeah. Plus we're all aliens. Like we're all in outer space, <laughs> floating well, in the cosmos. Out so. at times, yeah. <laughs> but no, that is an optimistic reading of it. I like it. I, I do think that it is something that... Organisms do fundamentally when they're being threatened is we come together, but you don't hear about that enough. Like it doesn't fit the status quo. The, the better messaging is that we're all inherently selfish, the selfish gene, dog eat dog, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But I think there's just as much competition going on, uh, like cooperation as competition out there. So your intention then with that graphic of the galaxy and the clouds and the face that eventually emerges, what was your intention behind that? Ah, uh, well, that's up to you, you know, like, <laughs> that's what I like about comics, because you saw it's quite a collaborative medium. Like, I obviously have things that I hope the reader will take away from it. But it's pretty active. I'd say you have to sort of decode symbols to work out what's going on. It's not like TV where you sort of let the images just wash over you. I think if you read a comic, you do have to engage a fair bit. So that's my lazy answer for not having to think of what I meant in that particular bit. Well, I'll pick up on the evolution a little later, but you've also then in that, in the sort of very early on in this novel, you touch on Amazon and it's almost like, you know, the monster is upon us and <laughs> the way it treats its workers. And you touch on then Jeremy Bentham and the Panopticon as well. Amazon? Yeah, you got to bring a little bit of that theory in there to help join the dots. But and as you were saying earlier when we were speaking before the show, that was that was a theory that they introduced in UK prisons, right? Yeah. So, well, they even used it on convicts in Australia, where everybody could be watched at every moment. Right. And yeah, I kind of wanted to get into that, like that Foucauldian idea of there being an overlap between workplaces and prisons and schools, and they're all being just sites of control and. Just because you felt that so acutely at Amazon, because you you're being tracked every second, like you, you'd often you get patted down when you're leaving. Like you have to go through as if you're entering, going on a flight, you know, go through beepers, multiple security points, and then you have a tracker that you're carrying around all day that can measure how fast you go, how many items you pick, all that. So you do internalize that surveillance, and that is the function completing itself really because you become your own manager and sort of whipping yourself and that's exactly what they want really. Well, you, that picks up on then on the nature of work because you go back into Marx and our labour is the only thing we actually own and then there's a progression that has occurred because it becomes mechanisation because it then becomes automation hmm. and in many ways what Amazon is doing is... The, the pinnacle of what we can do automatically, but that's being applied to people who aren't automatons. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think there's a bit in the book where I say they wish that we were robots, but we're, we're a bit too fleshy and uppity for their liking. <laughs> Not predictable enough. 
Picking up then on this notion of the natural progression of unionism, I mean, at one place, I think it's about page 78, you know, humans have been on this earth for 200,000 years, capitalism for 400, the economic order for 0.2%. Mm. And yet we're simply taking it for granted. Yeah, but you get told there's no other, what was the Thatcher line? There is no alternative. And you hear that in a million different ways. Oh, we've tried other things that didn't work, so this is what we're stuck with. It's like, well, even in, in this place that we live, like we've had tens of thousands of years of a much more non-hierarchical society, like sustainable society, pre-colonization. And to then, after just a couple hundred years, be like, no, no, capitalism's all we've got. It's the only way it could be. It's, it's offensive, but it's just hyper-normalized. Well, does it fit the sort of cosmic order, going back to my original <laughs> yeah, idea nice. of, of that progression? But you, again, also touch on the significance of unions. And if we look at page 96, which I'm rallying to now, in 1979, Melbourne University student Terry Stokes was arrested for kissing his lover, Darren Turner, outside a pub in the city. Terry was expelled from his housing on campus. A mass kiss-in protest outside the pub followed. Then the university's cafeteria workers and their union held a stop-work meeting and threatened to shut down all of the university's food service. Workers extended meaningful solidarity to a persecuted queer student well before the Australian gay rights movement took hold. So the union seemed to be at the forefront of issues even before their issues. Yeah, well... Yeah, I'm glad you chose that one. That's probably my favourite union story for a number of reasons. But I and I do think, you know, it's it's good to not for me to not romanticise that because that was a hard won discussion within the union. Like that was just progressive members, um, most of who were socialist at the time, um, winning an argument on the shop floor and convincing more backward elements of the union that they should support um, these queer kids. And I think the quote from the secretary when they did decide to go out on strike was. You just shouldn't pick on a bloke because of his sexuality. So they won the argument and better forces prevailed and they got they got the kid invited back to university, which is awesome. Well, yes, but, I mean, the, the uh, equality movement didn't take place for some time later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that is also like pushing back on the narrative that, because we have this narrative that the gay rights movement sort of started at 78 with the Mardi Gras and all that, but I suppose people have always been pushing back and trying to organize against this stuff. And this was one little spark that happened early on. And I do like it, especially because they're construction workers, which nowadays people might roll their eyes and think, oh, you bogans, or you backwards. But these people are not our enemy at all. They are us, and we should be working alongside each other. Well, there's a couple of things in what you're saying. Firstly, I mean, insider knowledge, you seem to have uh, an awareness of what took place and, and such like, which speaks to the fact that the unions themselves are a debating point. There's a yeah, discussion taking Yeah, place. they're never homogenous. And that's why it was hard to make this book, because I'm trying to sort of stay inside the tent and, you know, agitate even within the movement, but um, still respect the overall project. But there's contestation throughout, even within any one union, let alone the broader union movement. There's there's always rumblings going on. And also then the assumptions we make about unions yeah. that you've come to. Yeah, they get flattened, like get simplified, but 
they're just democratic organizations, you know, ideally in, in most instances. So they're up for grabs. So well, democratic organizations, we like to think of ourselves as democratic as a country, <laughs> but we don't always yeah, get it right. That's true. That's true. And yeah, unions definitely can get it wrong as well. You know, a lot of history of racism, they still miss, miss the mark sometimes, sometimes don't fight too hard enough or don't listen to the membership. So I'm not trying to glorify them. I'm just trying to say this is a phenomenon that's worth paying a bit of attention to, especially for younger people who uh, might not have grown up learning as much because they haven't been as dominant in workplaces where you used to sort of get a bit of a political education. So it's hard for us to sort of teach these stories because we don't have, we're not in the curriculum, we don't have big budgets for movies or whatever. So that's why a scrappy little comic like this is maybe well suited. Well, scrappy little comic. I mean, let's look at then some of the graphic... Uh, nature of it you've the the ending is actually uh, you pose yourself a question how can you actually illustrate unionism (laughs) an impossible task (laughs) so how did you grapple with that (laughs) I don't know the whole thing is just a fumbling with that question for a couple hundred pages but you give it a crack you know Well, you've got, a, you've got footsteps towards the end and a little crack in the footpath yeah. sort, of, sort of thing, eking it, you know, something eking its way out of the crack. Yeah, a little weed or maybe a flower a f- bursting out of the crack. You can Again, you can decide yourself <laughs> how to interpret it. Another thing you've touched on then as well is this notion of the progression of how we perceive work. And as you say, it's not in the curriculum. So you've looked at Marx and how labor is the only thing we as people actually own and mm. people at 3CR they often give their yeah. work away for others yeah this then led to a mechanization mm-hmm. which leads to an automa- um, automation yeah. of the workplace but at each stage there are struggles and challenges taking place yeah I think it's always been contested ever you know ever since people were scraped off the land in pushed into feudalism and the industrial revolution started i don't think there were any points at at which people went along passively and that's what the book tries to celebrate that yeah there's just billions of instances of people fighting back and where we fit within that lineage and we should work out where we want to go next but are we aware of that lineage it's hard for it to for these stories to be told so i don't know if we are no i mean partly it's just life on earth in the cosmos you know the past disappears especially if it's just a a scrappy little moment between people doesn't get historicized why should it um so yeah most stories do get lost to time i guess but you look at then you've you've raised the notion of education in many ways education is preparing people for work that seems to be one of the things it Mm. prides itself on and yet that work well the, this capitalist system has only been going for you know 0.2 percent of our time yeah. <laughs> it's are we, are we educating our children correctly i think we're regard? educating them to be ready for nine to five like even the school hours are almost exactly the same and sure it's about learning all the different lessons that you learn at school but it's also about getting used to showing up on time so that you do the same in your job and also giving your parents time for them to go to work and carry out their productive labor so but is there a next step after automation? What's going to happen to us? Gruel. No, <laughs> I don't know. It depends what we do in the meantime, I guess. That so, is a good question, though. Well, yeah, it, you're left pondering yeah. what 
is going to happen. Some people say the universal basic income would help and it, it probably would take a bit of pressure off people, but I don't think... We used to talk about like controlling the means of production or democratizing our workplaces and things like that. And I sort of think of the universal basic income as just getting an extra little bit of rations, really. I don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's going to fundamentally change power dynamics enough. But that might be something if people do get automated. But I don't think... But people have always said automation is going to push everyone out of work. Ever since the start of the Industrial Revolution, people were saying robots are going to do everything. And there are always new industries that emerge and people still are required to run the machines and fix the robots and all the rest. So I do think people overstate it sometimes, but it's not to say we shouldn't be getting ready for some, some big shifts. And a universal wage, well, bringing up this notion of a pandemic, which is not in the book, but that would that is changing mm. the nature of work, how we address it. Yeah. So perhaps there's a second edition to come out with oh, a God. chapter. On. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the pandemic also brought up the notion of a universal wage, really. Yeah. To, yeah. Keep, to keep society functioning. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, folks, I have a question. Go for did it. Did you do the illustrations in this graphic novel, Steve? I did, yeah. Oh, hmm. it's a multi-talented. So, a multi-talented. Well, the, the history and the dynamic of the stories that are there and the historical content, then the way it's been depicted. And as Sam has pointed out, you know, your interpretation of the graphics, I'm used to interpreting words. So it's been an interesting sort of diversion for me in many oh, ways. Thank you. Yeah, it's sort of made for people that don't usually read comics. Sometimes when I want to run an idea by someone, they say, oh, I'm not, I'm not your target market. I don't usually read them. I'm like, no, you're exactly the person. I, I want it to be as accessible as possible. But it begs the question of how much is to be read into images as well. Yeah. And they're more open-ended. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you could say images are kind of words in some symbolic sense. <laughs> but yeah, you can you can pour over them or just whiz through it and read it as a script. It's up to you. I have another question. Where did you launch it? Um, we launched it at Trades Hall. So ah. perfect, perfect venue for it, which is where my art studio is. The right. oldest union hall in, in the world we're lucky to have in this city. And I'd like to bring it back to my author, Nell Pierce. Where did you launch your book? Uh, uh, at the pub, the hotel pub in Tathra. There you oh, go. So nice. near Eden. Locality, yeah. locality, <laughs> locality, locality. They're living books. <laughs> this is, Jen, this is a conversation. What's happening? <gasps> we, we, we haven't had one for, for, for two years, basically. It's great. So basically, uh, Our Members Be Unlimited is the name of this graphic novel. Sam Wallman is the author and, and illustrator. illustrator. And it's a scribe publication. Right, and I had Nell Pierce with A Place Near Eden, the Australian and Vogel Literary Award winner. What did you win? Um, so part of the prize was that the book was published, which is um, so exciting. Um, Alan and Unwin brought it out, um, but also $20,000. Oh, <laughs> awesome. That will fund a bit more holidays. Yeah. <laughs> or drinks in the pub. Okay. <laughs> well, that's it for da David. Hasn't it been fantastic? Oh, the spontaneity, though. Oh, the, it's the just lovely. liveliness. Yeah. Okay. So, See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.